You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining this special edition of the American Revolution. I recently had the honor to speak with author James Kirby Martin following the release of the book 10 Key Campaigns of the American Revolution. Dr. Martin has written or edited at least 14 books about the American Revolution, including a biography of Benedict Arnold, which I relied on a great deal for many of the episodes that I've written involving Arnold. Dr. Martin has taught history at West Point, the Citadel, and Rutgers. He's currently Professor Emeritus at the University of Houston. Having devoted his career to speaking and writing about aspects of the American Revolution, his most recent contribution is a chapter to the book, which I mentioned before, Ten Key Campaigns of the American Revolution. The book overall is edited by Edward Lengel, and it includes ten chapters, each one written by a different expert about a different military campaign that took place during the Revolutionary War. Dr. Martin wrote the chapter in that book about the Saratoga Campaign. Listeners of the American Revolution podcast know that we recently completed a series covering the Saratoga Campaign as well. I was pleased to be able to sit down and talk with Dr. Martin about his most recent work, as well as the Saratoga Campaign more generally. And again, the change in audio quality is due to the fact that I had to record our conversation via Zoom. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. Dr. Martin, welcome to the American Revolution podcast, and thank you so much for speaking with me today. Well, I thank you in turn. Um, I appreciate this opportunity to share some knowledge about one of the most important campaigns of the American Revolution, sometimes overlooked, because so much of the emphasis is upon George Washington and the Continental Army, the main Continental Army, I should say, And, and yet there's another there's more than one other big story there, uh, and this is one of the biggest from, from my point of view. That is the John Burgoyne campaign of 1777, which 
started out so well and turned out to be a colossal failure that in turn really did help the Americans in terms of setting the stage to winning the war. So how did you uh, get involved in the project to write this chapter for 10 key campaigns? There are perhaps two background factors. One would be my long-term interest in trying to understand the life in the context of the times of Benedict Arnold, because Benedict Arnold's a major player in the Saratoga story. In fact, some would argue, and I'm, I'm certainly among them, that Arnold was perhaps the, well, she may say perhaps, but was the real hero of the battle. He isn't acknowledged that way officially. The Continental Congress decided to celebrate Horatio Gates, but uh, Arnold, in terms of the actual fighting, was the key person. And that's, that's one, of the, one of the reasons I was interested, because I've written in the area. But the uh, second really has to do with teaching. It was my honor uh, a couple of years ago to be a member of the faculty at the United States Military Academy at West Point, New York. And one of the subjects that I decided I'd like to do a course about was very simple, success and failure and generalship as it related to the American Revolution. And so I encouraged the cadets in that course to think about the success and the failures of certain key players, ranging from, as a matter of fact, Horatio Gates to Daniel Morgan to Benedict Arnold, the various British British generals, including Burgoyne and uh, certainly William Howe, and so on and so forth. So we explored what made them successful in gaining their appointments and how did they perform when they were actually in the field and having to make those tough day-to-day decisions. So it really was this opportunity to work with the cadets to think these kinds of issues through. And John Burgoyne represents uh, an incredible example of the kinds of things you might do right and the many kinds of things that you will do wrong if you find yourself a military leader. And so from that point of view, I hopefully, hopefully it was very instructive for the cadets. And in turn, I took some of the findings, what we discussed in that course, and I put them together in this particular essay, which is entitled John Burgoyne's Great Gamble. Gamble being a very key word because he was a gambler from beginning to end in many ways in his life. And in terms of this particular campaign, he gambled big time and he lost even bigger time. To take a step back, I've often wondered why the British thought this mission was so important. In other words, for several years, they had talked about wanting to cut off New England from the rest of the colonies by marching down from Quebec to New York. And Johnny Burgoyne was the one who really made the final attempt to do that. I mean, I guess it sounded good in London to draw that line and, and cut off this region from another region. But in reality, Burgoyne marched through the New York countryside, even if he had made it to New York, it seems like people still could have gone where the army had been and kept wandering back and forth between New England and the rest of the colonies, and it really wouldn't have accomplished much. So what were they really trying to accomplish by this mission? I think it's fair to say that in the spring and in the summer of 1775, at the time of Lexington and Concord, the Battle of Bunker Hill, the taking of Fort Ticonderoga and Crown Point, that the British really believed that the Americans were an inferior foe. And that's, that's very, very important in terms, of, in terms of their thinking. 
Uh, and Burgoyne is a perfect representation of all of that, as a matter of fact. The attitude that he had was, well, let's just get in when he arrives in Boston in May of 1775 to uh, reinforce General Thomas Gage. And that is, we'll just show him a thing or two. It's almost reflected in the general orders that went to Thomas Gage earlier in that year, early in 1775, that you're really dealing with a rude rabble. I mean, there's a real compliment, right? You're dealing with a rude rabble without plan, without concert, and without conduct. That's almost a direct quote. Go get them. Show them the steel. Show them a bayonet. Fire some musket balls at them, and they will cower, and they will stop all of this nonsense about some sort of a rebellion against British authority. And so what really happens at that point is, having faced a very mixed record at these particular battles, certainly at Lexington at Concord, at best, you could say that taking Ticonderoga was a fairly easy victory, but they weren't prepared. The British weren't prepared. And so they had to well, what are we going to do? How are we going to go about putting down this rebellion? And given the limited military means of the times, uh, given the size and the scale of armies, of navies, whatever, of military forces more generally, you had to develop some way to sort of, to put it this way, reconquer this area that was in rebellion. And that area at this point in time in 1775 was primarily the New England colonies, Massachusetts and Connecticut, New Hampshire, you could even throw in the Vermont Territory, which was disputed at the time. But the idea is, well, how can we end this rebellion? And by the end of 75 and early 1776, the decision is made the best strategy is take control of that corridor of water running north from New York, 350 miles up the Hudson River, go up Lake George, go up Lake Champlain, Richelieu River, all the way to Montreal, about 350 miles. And if you can cut off New England by taking that territory, New England on one side, New York and all the other colonies on the other side, you then can conquer or reconquer New England in detail. Therefore, you, sh you shut down the rebellion. So this idea and this concept is there. We might call it the fundamental British strategy in the early stages of the war. And what actually happens then is in 1776, the whole plan falls apart because the generals don't really follow the plan. Sir William Howe decides to go chasing after Washington and New Jersey, completely convinced he can capture Washington's army. That will end it. But, but, but then you have this northern force that involves uh, General Philip Schuyler, involves Benedict Arnold and others, that is, that is in the process of invading Canada. Now that force, those forces will be defeated at Quebec, that is the rebel forces, last day or uh, nighttime of 1775 will be driven out of Canada in 1776. But then you have this brilliant engagement resistance featuring Benedict Arnold as a sort of a, com not as a sort of, he is the Commodore of the Champlain fleet. And so he proves a worthy general, both on sea as well as on land, and he will help delay that British invasion coming out of Canada, uh, and it will fail in October 1776 as a result of the Battle of Valcour Island, which really does do an effective job. Yeah, I, I often said that the, his, his loss at Valcour Bay was one of his greatest victories. And yeah, I mean, he held off the, yeah. the invasion for an entire year, really. Right. It was, well, he stopped them. 
and that, that that then will allow time to prepare for what is coming in terms of the John Burgoyne invasion in 1777. Now, I should point out that Burgoyne was involved in that 1776 invasion. He was under the command of Governor Guy Carleton, uh, who is the uh, Governor General of Canada, or I should say Quebec province more specifically. And Burgoyne's convinced that, well, Carleton just didn't have, uh, how do we say this, he didn't really have the guts he needed to finish the job. But they should have proceeded beyond Valcour as they did. They should have gotten to Crown Point. Then they should have launched an attack and at least have taken that Gibraltar of America that we call Fort Ticonderoga yeah. in 1776. But it's really a problem of logistics that you get into because the deeper that army, Carlton's army, gets into New York, the longer the supply line is, winter begins to come in, and Carlton takes logical course, and that is let's pull back, this regroup will come back again in 1777. Burgoyne's not happy about that. And Burgoyne wasn't really happy about being in America anyway. That was sort of his, his temperament. What are we doing here with these piddling colonists? And so he, he gets permission. He goes back to England in the early part of 1777. And that that is amazing because he really has worked up a plan, a full-scale operational plan as to how we should conduct this campaign. And he presents it to King George III, presents it to Lord North and to others, and convinces them that if you give him enough troops, you can invade from Canada, launch point Montreal, and uh, you can break right through because the easy part of that journey is really going actually up Lake Champlain as you go south. and uh, the easy part is to get to Ticonderoga because it's basically an all-water route. That's as far as he had gone. He didn't know what lay beyond him, and that's one of the major flaws of this particular plan, and that is the territory gets much rougher to move through once you get beyond the lower end of Lake Champlain. Well, anyway, that's sort of the background. I, I don't want to go on and on and on, but uh, the key background in many ways is that Burgoyne believes he can get the job done, and that's typical of him because as a person who was not afraid to gamble, let's say at the table and lose lots and lots and recover and gamble again, his gamble is that what didn't work in 76 could work in 1777. And as he's going to find out, the plan is ultimately very flawed and will not bring him the great glorious victory that he hoped for. And one more thing I just say very quickly before we continue, and that is Burgoyne, in many ways, is a very, very proud individual. He believes he can get anything done. He believes through his own hubris or pride that he will emerge as the great hero in all sorts of buildings and schools and whatever you want to come up with will be named after the great John Burgoyne, the great heroic general, rather than the goat that he turned out to be of the revolutionary period from at least the British point. Well, that I find to be a common trend with most generals of the time, and maybe now too, I don't know. But especially during that time, most generals seem to think, if only I had the chance to be in command, if only I wasn't second in command or only a command of division or something, if only I was the commander, I could do so much more than the guy on top of me. Burgoyne certainly felt that way, and, and you see it in his thoughts for conducting the war from Canada. 
I guess you have to have a certain amount of hubris to become a general in the first place. And you build on that only by pushing the limits, pushing beyond the guy that's ahead of you and proving that you're better than him in some way. Well, that's really what happened because uh, Sir Guy Carleton was a careful individual. He knew, based on his experiences in warding off the, uh, the attempt to take the city of Quebec after the American defeat there at the end of 1775, he understood that guys like Arnold and some of these other individuals were pretty tough, were pretty tough folks and they should be respected. And he also understood that if you're going to attack, you have to be well prepared. And he had certainly learned that experience from his failures in 1776, because even though he was well prepared, the timing of his campaign was all wrong in terms of getting it launched too late in the year uh, before winter might, might have set in. So it's really interesting because Burgoyne and Carlton didn't get along after this point in time. Burgoyne is given the command. You're the one who's going to get the star. You know, that is, you're going to be the star of the show. Carlton is to stay back in Canada. And one of the results of that, Carlton wasn't very happy about supporting Burgoyne, especially as he kept pushing farther south. And the issue of maintaining his supply line back into Canada became problematic. It was sort of like <laughs> Carlton said, well, you're the show, man. <laughs> you well, said what, you could do it. You know, Why aren't you doing it? On your own, since you're the one who thought you could get it done, that wasn't that really wasn't very helpful. And that's an example of this kind of as you're talking about. This goes on all over the place. On the American side, you had Philip Schuyler. I rate very highly, and thought along with Arnold did a brilliant job of delaying Burgoyne after the taking of Ticonderoga. But the Continental Congress sort of had this strange love affair with General Horatio Gates, former British officer, uh, well regarded by many of the New England leaders. And they kept saying, well, the only way we're going to stop Burgoyne is we've got to supplant Schuyler with Gates, which they do in the middle of August of 1777. And Gates goes north, meets Schuyler as the Americans are still retreating in front of the slowly advancing British force. He relieves Schuyler. He does it all very rudely. And it's this, you know, I should be the one who's getting all the credit. I'm the one who can really defeat the British. And I just will draw a line somewhere and they will, I won't let him buy me. And he is, well, Gates is very, very overrated in that sense because uh, he can't seem to get along. He's, he's threatened by Arnold. He had been threatened by Arnold. Arnold's getting too much attention. I'm not getting enough. And all of this is really what we might relate to the politics of command. Who's in charge here and who's going to get the credit? When you would think on both sides, they would be doing everything they could. That is on the American side, trying to get along and work together carefully. On the British side, trying to get along and work together carefully. But truthfully, when you look at the record, it's almost embarrassing because they just in each case, they almost did as much squabbling among themselves as they did squabbling back and forth against uh, against their foes. So that's that's an interesting part of the story, to say the least. Yeah, I, I actually see a lot of parallels between Horatio Gates and Johnny Burgoyne in that both of them seem to really focus a lot on lobbying rather than fighting. Burgoyne, yes. of course, as you point out in your chapter, saying he would go back to London for personal reasons in 76 and then... <laughs> immediately went to go see King George and submit his plans for running the whole show. Right. And uh, General Gates, 
all the time. He didn't participate in the crossing of the Delaware because he said he was sick. And then he rode straight down to Baltimore to complain to Congress about what Washington was but doing. The best doctors were in Baltimore at that point. Supposedly. Yeah, that must have been it. And he didn't really visit them, uh, but he certainly visited Samuel Adams and other supporters right. uh, and, and got in some, interestingly enough, got in some bad-mouthing about Benedict Arnold because Washington had just favored Arnold to go and help with the command in New England because the British were setting up a naval base in the Newport area of Rhode Island. Right. And uh, there'll be a, there'll be fighting there in this New England command zone. Uh, so Gates was sort of peeved at Washington, but how Washington, how could Washington select this guy Arnold? You know, he's just some guy from Connecticut. You know, he's a merchant. He doesn't have any military experience. That's one of the amazing things about Arnold. For a guy who didn't have any military experience, he knew what he was doing, and he could command, as I said, on land and on sea, and uh, really play a very very vital role. This is all, of course, before the so-called treason in 1780, but 1777, Arnold's the guy, and Gates doesn't really care for that. That leads to problems at Saratoga, because uh, yeah. I was just going to say, Arnold is second in command, but, but Gates, Gates's vision there is really, let them come and attack us. We draw a line, you know, up from the Hudson River going west over Bemis Heights, They've got to get around us. The British have moved slowly. Their force has been worn down by a series of uh, other incidents that we haven't gone into. And we'll just wait them out. And we'll just stand tall because, and I'm not really sure the Americans, because remember Gates is an Englishman. Uh, he's not really sure they're going to be those good fighters that Benedict Arnold believes in. And so there's really a controversy about how to even conduct themselves tactically in the battles. Arnold will carry the day because he'll be but become the leader in the field. And, and it, it really is a, a very important part of the story. But at the same time, Burgoyne, well, he has more, let's say, at this point, despite uh, what we've said about Guy Carlton, he has some more unity of command with his subordinate officers. Burgoyne is the slowest moving guy in town. There is no doubt. I shouldn't say in town, in the backwoods. Uh, and it wasn't just because well, there were some reasons, one of which was he had to figure out how to get his artillery pieces not only to the bottom, well, actually not to the bottom, but to the bottom of Lake George, how to carry them overland to the Hudson River, and uh, then how to move, proceed. And if you look at, if you look at it, it took Burgoyne, let me give you the dates. Uh, he left Canada around the 15th or 16th of June, uh, made it to and overran Fort Ticonderoga, which is well, well over 100, 150 miles. I don't have the exact number in front of me. He does that in, well, approximately three weeks or maybe, well, in that area, three weeks. Well, then he gets there on July 6th, but he doesn't actually, is not in position for another two months. And it's a, it's a shorter distance. It's 60, 70 miles he has to cover takes him over two months to get in position to even go at what is now the Gates Northern Department Army uh, on Bema sites and is worn out in the process uh, in a whole variety of ways. And it really does set up the possibility of what will be a great American victory in the end. Yeah, well, I think a big part of his slow movement, you got to credit Team Schuyler for all the trees they Absolutely. felled and water they dumped in to swamp the land that the British had to march through and all the 
the thing killing dead animals and leaving dead cattle all over the rotting corpses all over the streets. You got it. The slow movement was yeah. uh, very well done. Uh, and it, it's a classic kind of delaying action. If you can't, if you can't defeat the enemy uh, in the, in a, say, in an organized set-piece battle, so what you really want to do is you want to build your strength by retreating very, very slowly. Arnold understood this. Yeah. Uh, certainly Schuyler did. And you just keep slowly back. You keep drawing them in. You keep drawing them in as you're backing up. And it's that that really kind of a amazing approach for which Schuyler's been in many ways criticized. Well, why didn't he just stand and fight them? Well, he didn't have the resources to stand and fight them. But the resources are going to be developing. More and more militia come out. There are various reasons for that. Some attributes this to the story of Jane McRae, this so-called loyalist woman who was butchered in late July by some Indians that were part of Burgoyne's campaign. And that that story spread all over New England about this butchering British soldiery and will the Indians be threatening us actually in New England? Uh, and that helped the militia come out. And what's happening is, as part of this pattern, is that Burgoyne's numbers keep going down, 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 down. If he started with 8,500, by the time of the first battle, September 19th, he may be down to 6,000 to 6,500, and he's lost most of his Indian, uh, that is Canadian Indians who had joined, uh, had joined the campaign. Uh, in turn, by delaying, the American numbers keep going up. So by the end of this, Burgoyne may have been down to 5,000, and the Americans were up to roughly 15,000. So delay is very, very important as a perfectly legitimate operational strategy, and that's what really worked for the Americans. And right there, you had to give Schuyler, and with assistance from Arnold, the real credit. Gates didn't show up in time. In fact, a lot of the things that happened to Burgoyne happened before Gates showed up. So he's there for the cleanup, if I can put it that way. It's the claim to victory at the end. The cleanup guy who got the got the uh, coin. Put it over the, the, the uh, goal from the one-yard line, basically. <laughs> That's right. That's exactly the very, very good description. And another you know, kind of analogy from that point of view uh, is that uh, in any sport, football, whatever, basketball, whatever, don't ever take your opponent opponent so lightly. And Burgoyne did. That was part of his hubris, humility, sort of condescension toward these outlanders, that is, the colonists. They really weren't true blue British subjects like him. And Burgoyne had a lot of good things happen to him because he was born in somewhat obscure circumstances. And he also was in his mid-50s. And uh, he spent a lot of time worrying about as they moved through the wilderness. The story is he had 30 wagons loads of goods that belonged to him personally. He brought the family tea service with him. He was not short on uniforms up to 25 or 30. And of course, my joke has always been, yeah, he changes uniforms every day because the bears out there, you know, in the wilderness really be impressed. Oh, look, he's got this one <laughs> instead of that one. Uh, so Always have to look the gentleman, right? Yeah, look the gentleman. That's right. And that's part of it. Uh, is this for the British generals more as a characteristic, they seem to worry about those kinds of things a little bit too much rather than getting on with the actual campaigning that was going on. So it's a fascinating story, both in terms of, let me put it this way, 
seeing the big picture strategy, we got to cut off Dominion from the rest of the colonies and then completely failing over a two-year period, 76 and 77, to implement that strategy effectively. And of course, your question or your point was, what if we're going to made it to Albany? So what? Well, General Howe, who is the overall commander-in-chief in New York, that summer, instead of supporting Burgoyne and moving an army northward to Albany to complete this junction, he decides to send his forces out in the middle of the, not really in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, but they uh, go by water, some 15,000, they come up through Chesapeake Bay, and ultimately he will, around 6, 26th of September, will capture Philadelphia after beating up Washington's army in a couple of pretty bad battles. But the British just didn't get themselves. They couldn't execute the plan. They couldn't execute the strategy. They couldn't execute the operational plan. And they made a lot of tactical errors when it got right down to it. Well, and again, uh, even, even when Hal took Philadelphia, everybody kind of said, so what? You know, we can't right. the Amenities, Ooh, enemy's capital. Right. Is the war over now? Oh, no, right. no, so it's what? not Europe. You know, you take Paris. Right. You capture, okay, I'm saying if you take Paris, you probably have captured France. If you take Philadelphia, all you do is move the Continental Congress, very portable body, and they just go west and re- relocate out west about 100 miles and just wait out until the British will give up and will go back. Because one of the outcomes is that after these two battles, Burgoyne is so beaten up that he has little choice but to retreat. And we'll retreat about 10 miles northward up to what is today the area of Schuylerville, New York, at that time actually called Saratoga. And they, he will have to surrender his whole force, not just portion of it, his whole force. This episode is supported by the food delivery service, Factor. It's spring now, and we all want to spend more time outdoors enjoying life, not the kitchen. Factor ensures you have fresh, Never frozen, chef crafted, dietitian approved meals that you can prepare in just two minutes. Each week you get a menu of 35 meal options as well as 60 add ons, including breakfasts, on the go lunches, snacks, and beverages. You can customize your orders to get as much or as little as you want each week and can pause or make changes to your orders at any time. Factor is less expensive than takeout and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. It's the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. Now, they even have a special deal for fans of the American Revolution podcast. Head to factormeals.com slash ARP50 and use that code ARP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code ARP50 at factormeals.com slash ARP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. And that in turn, along with a few other developments, but this is the key thing, will encourage the French to come out openly in favor of American independence. They will go on to sign two treaties, one of amity and commerce, one of a military alliance, and the French will begin to pour, really, by the standards of the day, massive military forces into helping defeat their old enemy and bring down the proud British lion. And that is one of the key developments, because once France gets involved in this war, and once they 
are able to coordinate with American forces, it's not going to work well for the British because now they have not only to fight the Americans and they haven't defeated them completely, but now they have to fight the French and it will expand out. The Spanish really never come in, but they do help the French. The Dutch ultimately will get involved and it really becomes like a gang up on the British, what, which had been perceived as the most powerful of the empires out there, and they do take a good licking in the end. So that this battle, I would argue, if you're going to line up 10 key campaigns, this is number one. Now, admittedly, I'm the author, so I'm a little bit biased on this, but without that development, without the sacrifice, amazingly enough, of characters like Benedict Arnold, as you know, got shot up terribly in the left leg, limping the rest of his life, almost died from his wound, um, and really becomes very embittered toward the American cause because of the treatment. Gates was not exactly nice to him, and there are lots of other instances of that. The whole thing gets around to one of the great ironies is that Benedict Arnold, who's perceived is the total anti-hero of the revolution, was the great hero at Saratoga. And I realize some may want to support Gates, but he was still the Johnny come lately in terms of what happened there. Right. I, there's a famous quote by Arnold when he's being carried from the field at Bemis Heights where someone asks him where he was shot, and he said, in the same leg, I wish it had been my heart. My heart. Right. And you know, I almost wish it had been his heart because he had done so many wonderful things up until that time. And really, right. Bemis Heights was his last great contribution to the war. And if he had gone out on that high note, we would have remembered him as the most wonderful person fighting general of the war, really. Right. I could have ended up because I went to Paul Revere High School in Bath, Ohio, outside of Akron and Cleveland. I could have ended up going to Benedict Arnold High School instead. <laughs> but, that, but I guarantee you, there are a lot of Benedict Arnold High Schools out there. And, and yeah. probably there are none anywhere. As, uh, as much and, of it as he did in the first three years, he, he ruined it all. And, and ruined it all. Honestly, so. In a good way. You know, he's just like, gentleman Johnny Burgoyne ruined it all for himself and spent much of the rest of his life really defending the ineptitude that he brought to that campaign. And... Arnold sort of had the same experience and really in many ways had a very sad life after 1780 and he, he passes from the scene in 1801. In fact, there was so little concern they weren't sure he was buried for almost 100 years. It's actually a church along uh, the Thames River, St. Mary's Battersea, where he is buried underground. These are amazing stories. Human beings, like all of us, with all sorts of strengths and all sorts of flaws and they sort of come together and it, in the end, really worked out well for the American. And I mean, this is, this is a rich story with many elements. We didn't talk about the Bennington battle and the loss when, when Burgoyne, because he's getting bogged down in August, they start to run short of supplies. and They're running out of horses. And they, he, he sends a rather large column of Hessians south into the Vermont Territory and they will run into American forces under General John Stark. And this battle at Bennington in the middle of August will wipe out that force. It either gets killed or captured for all practical purposes. And that's sort of sawing off one limb. Then you have the other story of Burgoyne did have this uh, diversionary force that went out through Lake Ontario, cut into the 
northwestern end of the Mohawk Valley uh, and gets bogged down uh, besieging Fort Stanwix at the, and that actually called Fort Schuyler at that point in time. Uh, and that force, largely a Native American force, mostly made up of members of the Six Nations, will be engaged in a bloody battle of Oriskany on August 6th, but ultimately driven off by none other than Benedict Arnold, who goes westward and rushes a force westward and sort of drives these folks out on the ground. Arnold was coming, Arnold was coming, and he's bringing his huge army, uh, and there's a panic, and that force, that is the St. Ledger force, has to pull back into Canada so that diversionary force is lost, and so Burgoyne just becomes more and more and more of a, really a sitting duck. And in the end, he loses, he loses everything. Yeah, I think you pointed out in the book, Burgoyne had originally requested almost 15,000 troops for this mission and ended up getting about half that. That's right. And it was more like, it was more like 11,000. And they, the, the, the British command said, well, look, we, the wars cost money. Yeah. And and this is bleeding us down. I mean, we're we're still not probably at that point even free of the debts from the French and Indian War, or the Seven Years' War in Europe more generally. And you're, we're just piling on debt after debt after debt. So we we sort of believe you can get the job done, and I, we're sort of overestimating what you really need. And so he ends up with a thousand, which does include a few Canadian volunteers and does include five, six, seven, it depends how you count them, it's very hard to say, uh, Native Americans of the, uh, of the various Canadian nations. And so he doesn't really have in his mind the strength that he really needs. He's probably two to 3,000 short to give you a kind of a rough number. And so that will become kind of like a fallback excuse. Well, I just, they didn't give me enough. And I did everything I could, but since they didn't give me enough, it's their fault. It's not. And, then, and of course, I'm just getting into the blame game, which will go on and is actually in its own certain way rather entertaining if you if you read the doc. No, it's his fault. No, well, you know, why did Howe go to Philadelphia? You know, he didn't support me. The plan was he was supposed to come north, and that that is, I guess, that's just the human nature. We don't want to we don't want to say, okay, I screwed this up, and. Uh, Therefore, I'll go away quietly and not be a subject of public scrutiny in, in, in the end, that, that sort of thing. Well, one of, one of Burgoyne's real problems, I think, after the defeat was, unlike a lot of the generals, he didn't have, he wasn't well-born. He didn't have brothers and cousins and uncles who were serving in parliament to back him up politically. So once, right. once he failed militarily, it was kind of the end for him. He did have good connections with the aristocracy. His wife was deceased. She was a daughter of a very prominent family, Lord Derby, I believe, or Darby is his name. And so he did have those kinds of connections, but really he didn't have, as you say, he didn't have the peerage to fall back on because no matter how you cut it, he was not, you know, he was gentleman Johnny. He really wasn't an individual who'd been honored with great titles from that point of view. And so when he gets back to England, he's got, he's, he's got to say, well, this went wrong, that went wrong, but uh, that was everybody else's fault. And you know, those Hessians, they didn't know how to fight. We paid all that money for them. They were a waste of money. I'm going to try to give you some more excuses if I can. And it's, you know, what was the matter of St. Ledger? Why did he run back into 
you know, into Quebec. They just left me in the lurch. Uh, we had it, we had it all going our way, and sort of this failure to admit you screwed up. And one of the interesting things was, even though he lost, he really then signed this agreement, the surrender agreement called the Convention of Saratoga. And this was one dumb idea. Uh, even though Burgoyne lost the battle, he almost won in a certain way because Gates, and I guess I can say politely in his semi-ineptitude, agreed to allow that whole force to be marched to Boston and shipped back to England. So you send a force of 5,000 with Burgoyne and its commanders back to England. All you have to do is turn around, release 5,000 troops on home duty in England, send them back to America, and you haven't really knocked out that army. And George Washington, even the Continental Congress, which did have some ineptitude problems, to say the least, understood this was not a good plan, so they changed it. And I, I don't know whether a lot of people know this convention army went to Boston, then it was marched through Connecticut, New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Delaware, all the way out to Charlottesville, Virginia, which was frontier at that point in time. And then they built a little community, and that's where they waited out the war, or they escaped and disappeared into these, these sessions and the British soldiers into the countryside and blended in. And it's also interesting that the Continental Army, which was always hurting for enough troops, Washington had a terrible problem after 1776 because his popular enthusiasm wore down over time. And so Continental Army recruiters and state recruiters were out actively trying to recruit Burgoyne's army into Continental and state forces and did have some success in doing so as the Convention Army moved all the way out to Charlottesville. It's an, it's an interesting story in and of itself. What do you do with an army when you capture it? When yeah. you don't really have the facilities, I guess, to just throw them all in prison. You know, we, we don't have an Andersonville situation, although prisons were pretty bad as you know, and the British don't have much of a record, nor do the Americans in terms of treatment. Think of the ships out in the, the harbor in Brooklyn and the Amer many Americans captured who, who died on those ships. A very, very tragic story. But, but uh, in this case, that army did not get back to England, so it did not get back into play. And so Gates, really, even though that was kind of a muff job on his part, Gates still emerged as the hero because those leaders in Congress just liked him for some reason. I'm still trying to figure out why. I put it down that he was really good at lobbying. And he was yes. Really good at oh, yes, he was. Power. He was. And, and the New England delegates just ate it up. Right. I don't he's know a why. political general. Yeah. I mean, as a type, he's a political general. Schuyler just assumed because he was of the American elite, a wealthy person, had served in Congress that he would have some clout, but the New Englanders didn't like him. For one reason they didn't was he will go in, in July and uh, into August of 1775, go to Ticonderoga, take over command from sort of an incompetent guy named Benjamin Hinman, uh, who's from Connecticut. And he tries to put discipline into those troops. Well, wait a minute. You know, what are you trying to do? Tell us we should march in a line. We should learn the fundamentals of how to campaign and be disciplined and be on guard and have, you know, sentries out. What, what's the matter with this guy? And uh, the New Englanders buy that in, right into him. You see, he's a, 
of this a person who thinks too well of himself from uh, the area of upstate New York, and uh, therefore he sort of is put down. And Arnold just didn't have the skills, I guess. And Arnold wasn't afraid to tell people. He wasn't afraid to tell people when he, let me rephrase it. He did not suffer fools lightly, and he was surrounded by some real lightweight fools. And, yeah. and he paid the price. Arnold, you either really loved him or you really hated him. And I think most people fell into the latter camp. Isn't that amazing? It's true. <laughs> uh, and so many of his peers really didn't like the guy. Uh, but the soldiers underneath him, they, they were glad because they, they knew that he was supporting them and that he respected them and that he would do anything he could to not get them killed in combat, but to get them win, to win in combat. Right. There were, there were a lot, I guess love is a strong word. They respected right. him as a leader, right. or they hated his right. guts and thought he was a criminal. Right. <laughs> that's, that's right. So got both ways in this in this particular situation. But the but the issue with Schuyler too, I think a lot of it had to do with the age old New York New England rivalry. Absolutely, um, and a lot of that goes back to the Vermont territory. Right. And Schuyler had been very active in going after the Green Mountain Boys and trying to get them arrested. And Ethan Allen, who's one of the great goofs of the whole revolutionary story from my point of view, and uh, accomplished. Amazingly, so little, unless you read his great memoir, uh, which he, of course, captured for Ticonderoga in the name of the great Jehovah and the Continental Congress when he probably said, come out, you old rat, referring to the British commander there. Yeah, yeah he's, and, he supposedly and, said that before there was a Continental Congress. So. <laughs> okay. The Continental Congress had just started in his session the same day, May 10th, 1775. Yeah. So, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, Schuyler and, and New Yorkers still thought Vermont was very much a part of New York and thought that until right. 1790. Right. That made well, Englanders very hostile to any New Yorkers. Well, Schuyler did accept uh, the Green Mountain Boys as a regiment, even though he didn't want to. And he respected their decision, not elect Ethan Allen, but Seth Warner as their colonel in command. So, as you know, the Allen story can go on, and we could go on about that. He decides to sort of single-handedly capture Montreal. Gets He gets himself captured in the trying to take Montreal in September of 1775. He gets shipped off to England, spends, what was it, 18 months or so in an English prison. Is then, yeah, he uh, actually did time in the Tower of London. Yes, that's only, right. Only two Americans to have that privilege. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And uh, uh, then, in turn, he'll come back. But they sort of give him an honorary colonelcy, but they don't. Washington says, hey, this guy's he's not worth the time. We never know what he's going to do. The, the, the funniest thing I ever heard about Allen was um, long after the war, he ended up marrying a woman uh, who was from New York or, or had a New York family. And he inherited a lot of their New York claims in Vermont, and he spent most of his later years fighting for New York land rights after spending all of his That's early right. years fighting against. Curious, them. A curious, a series of curious endings to his to his <laughs> life. That's true. That's true. Yeah. He's a very colorful character, although probably not very critical to the credit that he gets as sort of a leader of the of the uh, revolutionary era. And you're right. The gentleman from South Carolina was the other person, and I'm trying to remember his name, uh, who was in the Tower of London 
It was, uh, was it Henry Lawrence? Yes, Henry Lawrence. That's right. And that's that's an interesting story in itself. But yeah. so we missed out on the daily negotiations of the Peace of Paris that's being worked out in 1782 and 1783. I mean, it's just it's like the It's just one great story after another. Let me tell you this one. I've, over the years, I've given a number of talks to various groups and uh, done some and uh, in individual Amer Sons of the American Revolution meetings. And, and one of these, a few years ago, I said, okay, here are three battles. I'm going to describe them as fairly and as briefly, but fairly. I'm not going to try to favor one. And then I want you to vote and decide which was the most significant. So battle number one would be the Trenton-Princeton campaign. But we just call it one battle, even though it's more than one. And I described it. And then second would be the, the great victory at Saratoga there. I biased the audience already by saying great. <laughs> but I tried to avoid that. And then the third would be the siege in the, the battle at Yorktown in 1781. And I described each one. I said, okay, I want you to rate these one, two, three in terms of which mattered the most. And it was rather curious because without my prompting, Saratoga swept the field as the most critical because it's the classic turning point of the war. And there was actually a tie between, and you can make the case either way, between the, the Trenton campaign, which sort of saved the cause, and a brilliant tactical turnabout victory by, by Washington and a few others. Or, of course, Yorktown, because Yorktown sort of was the wrap-up. Once you lost a second major army, it was going to be hard to come back. And a lot of that had to do with the sheer cost of maintaining the war. The British were really beginning to hurt financially. How many more armies could they afford to lose and not really win back almost any portion of the colonies. So it was, it was sort of an interesting exercise, but it also relates back to our book. And they have these various campaigns. And one of the things I think readers could do is, is, is they read about the various campaigns is compare and contrast them, not only get a better, perhaps a more complete overall sense of the war and how it was fought, but which, which of these really mattered the most in lining them up and asking the whys in trying to determine in the end what really did matter. They all mattered, but they all mattered in different ways, and some may have mattered more than others in the end. So that's part of the interesting part of doing historical analysis from my, from my point of view, and learning some military history, learning some of the fundamentals of making war. Like when I taught at West Point, we would talk about strategy, grand strategy, operation, operational planning, tactics, um, and so on and so on and so forth. And uh, it's, it's a very, very interesting way to learn about a very important, because we human beings are good at making wars. There's no doubt about that. It helps to understand what they're all about, how they're fought, and why some win and some lose in the end. Yeah, I think the three, three campaigns you mentioned, um, Trenton, Saratoga and Yorktown were the three, for lack of a better word, winningest campaigns for the right. for the Patriots. The Trenton kept the army alive at a time when it could right. have been murdered in its crib. Um, Saratoga, of course, brought in France, and Yorktown was the coup de grace. But Saratoga, it's interesting because the British were constantly complaining. The the off leaders, the commanders, were constantly complaining they didn't have enough troops, no matter how much Britain sent. 
And with the entry of France, even if France hadn't sent a single soldier or ship to America, just their declaration of war caused Britain to remove so many thousands of British regulars from North America to go defend the Caribbean. And they had concerns about a French invasion of of mainland England. Um, So that the fact that Saratoga brought France's entry into the war is what made it so absolutely right. turn the tide of the war and, and made it clear that America had a path to victory. Right. That dispersal of forces is one of the most important things that happened because, to put it this way, what the British did was they took their eye off the target. And what had become, what had started as a civil conflict or civil war now actually would become and would, to use the fancy term, transmogrify or turn into a world war before it was all said and done. And the winners in the end turned out to be the Americans, at least some of us look at it that way. I'm not saying all folks everywhere, even in England might look at it that way, but. The Tories weren't too happy about it, but yeah. <laughs> there you go. Anyway, yeah. Uh, so it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating story. And the more folks can get involved with it, the better from my point of view. Yeah, I think it's laid out very well in the book, you know, each of the 10 campaigns and and how it led us from how can we possibly win this thing to, you know, by the end, victory is clearly inevitable. I think the British really had the mindset after France entered the war that this war has been lost. Right now we're doing damage recovery. We want to minimize our losses at this point. And they were willing to toss off North America for because you know, one sugar island in the Caribbean was much more valuable to them than than the entire continent, I think. Absolutely. But yeah, I think the book does a wonderful job of laying all that out. And, you know, I think everybody should check it out. Dr. Martin, I really, I could talk to you for hours about all this. This has been really fascinating, but I, I want to be respectful of your time. The book, again, is called The 10 Key Campaigns of the Revolution and recently went on sale, I think, last week. Uh, as yes. Recording this, uh, I think several weeks ago, by the time people see this. But yeah. A week or two ago, something like that. But it's out and available, and here it is. It is uh, available. Yeah. Each chapter, as I said, was written by a different expert. You, of course, did the Saratoga campaign, and we have nine other really great writers who wrote on the other campaign. So anybody who's interested in the, specifically in the military aspects of the revolution, this does a really great job summarizing all of them. So yeah, Dr. Martin, thank you so much for speaking with me today. I I really enjoyed your talk. Right. Maybe do it again sometime. Glad to. Take care. My thanks again to James Kirby Martin for speaking with me about the Saratoga campaign. If you would like to get his new book, The Ten Key Campaigns of the Revolution, edited by Edward Lengel, I've included a link on my blog at blog.amrevpodcast.com. I've also included a list of other relevant works by James Kirby Martin that might interest you. As always, if you have any thoughts, questions, or comments about this episode, the podcast generally, or the American Revolution, please feel free to reach out to me on Twitter, at AmRevPodcast, on the Facebook group, American Revolution Podcast, or email me at mtroy.history at gmail.com. Links for all of these are also on my blog and website. Well, that's all for this episode. I hope you will join me again next time for another American Revolution Podcast. 
The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts.